Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Education, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Alice Garner, a host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Therese Samra Graben about her new book, which she co-edited with Wendy Hayden. It's called Teaching Through the Archives, Text, Collaboration and Activism, and it was published this year, 2022, by Southern Illinois University Press. I was drawn to this book by the title because it promised um, an exploration of the intersection of archival research and pedagogy, which speaks directly to my own experience and interest as initially a historian of 19th century France, who then moved into language teaching and now more recently into education-focused research. Um, Therese will be joining me from the USA and I'm in Australia and we've managed to make the time difference work. So Therese, welcome to the show. Thank you. Perhaps you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself and then how you came to work on this book project with your co-editor, Wendy Hayden. Yes, I'd love to. I am an associate professor of English at Florida State University uh, with a specialization in rhetorical studies, but a background in archival and information studies. This happened because of, of, of almost 20 years ago now, while I was in graduate school, I enrolled in a very innovative team-taught seminar in archival theory and practice that brought together students from rhetoric, composition, uh, literary studies, and history. That seminar exposed us to recent debates, to practical arguments in archival work, but most importantly, it actually gave us unprecedented access to the collections at a nearby historical society where each of us was invited to select a set of materials that needed processing. And, um, and we were invited then to work through the collections from the dual perspective of both archivist and researcher. So feeling the tensions of how, how to build and ethically and responsibly handle a collection, but also how to anticipate researchers' needs. So it was very experiential. Um, 
and, and then I, I, so, so I carried that interest with me beyond graduate school. It helped shape almost every project that I undertook after that. I knew Wendy Hayden from working in the same field, but we became more aware of one another's work through an annual pre-conference workshop on archives. This workshop was held every year just before uh, a a very large field conference uh, for us in the U.S. It's called the Conference on College Composition and Communication. And each year, this archival workshop would have a different focus. And we had both attended this workshop several times, separately and together, sometimes as participants or as keynote speakers. But in 2016, we were both assigned to co-lead a table discussion on developing archival classroom projects, teaching through the archives, planning hybrid archival courses and collaborating with special collection staff. And that discussion was so rich and so impassioned uh, that the idea for this collection was born right away. Even before that evening ended, Wendy and I had decided it was time to put out a call for a special collection. So almost immediately after the conference, we reached out to Southern Illinois University Press because they do publish quite a few titles having to do with archives. They expressed interest in the book and several months later, we circulated the call for chapters. How long did it take to to pull it all together? Because these projects can be <laughs> complex beasts. <laughs> we, um, you know, it, it did. It it took a while, uh, in part because we received many more submissions than we anticipated. Um, we, and in part because um, we were both. Very, we were undertaking this collection at very busy times for both of us. Our collaborators were also very busy. It was, um, you know, we put out the call in 2017 and started working on the book in 2017. It took about two years really to get the collection put together, but then um, COVID actually delayed the production process another year and a half. So start to finish the book took about five years. It's, it's, it's a little bit longer than we had hoped. Um, you know, I could say just a little bit about selections. It was so difficult to narrow down the selections. We received three, four times as many um, proposals as we had asked for. And um, we took that as an affirmation that we were distributing the proposal at the right time for the field. Um, So many people we knew were working in archives and working through archives. Um, but also I think it's unique to our discipline. A number of scholars in rhetoric and writing studies are already quite interested in innovating archival methods and practices. So they don't only use archival material, but they really think about their own role as potential donors to archives and builders of collections, community-based researchers or volunteers in their own institutions, or teachers of archival ethics from feminist, post-colonial, and anti-racist points of view. So we received an incredibly positive response And to us, the collection was just a natural outgrowth of the field's interest and expertise and all these things, plus our shared commitment to promoting archives as sites for analysis and collaboration and activism. Um, But it was the the narrowing down of the focus that, that took some time as well. And we weren't quite expecting that to take so much time. Maybe we'll come back to that because I I did want to ask you about the way that you've structured the book. But first, perhaps, um, because uh, you're coming from a background in in rhetoric and composition, 
uh, and some of the chapters um, address that uh, more directly than others. But this is something that, you know, even the naming of those courses, it's a little bit different in Australia. We don't necessarily have standard courses um, called rhetoric and composition. So I just thought it might be useful for international listeners or people working in different education systems to have an understanding of what those courses look like. Absolutely. And, you know, if it's all right, it, it might be useful for me first to make a distinction between what, what we call the discipline rhetoric and composition uh, and courses that might mm. be be labeled as rhetoric and composition. And, and, um, and if I'm saying too much, just <laughs> just let me know. Sure. But I think, um, you know, the courses themselves serve very different functions depending on the department or the institution in which they're contextualized. I'm not so sure we have so many courses in this country that are called rhetoric and composition, but you often see rhetoric and composition practitioners um, labeling courses that way. But I'll, but I'll first talk about how I tend to describe rhetoric and composition as a field that reflects a convergence of ancient traditions with contemporary issues mm. having to do with the learning and the teaching of writing in various modes and contexts. And so uh, disciplinarily, like many other fields, what I understand is rhetoric and composition has its own histories, its own theories, its own methodologies, as well as those that it has borrowed or adopted from other fields. But one of its distinctive characteristics, I think, is that the study of rhetoric and composition also includes the study of its own formation as a field, if that makes sense. I, I don't know many other fields where when you take courses at the graduate level, you are, you're learning about how the field has evolved. And, and a, a number of uh, folks who identify as rhetoric and composition scholars are quite invested in how the discipline even came to be formed, how it came to be named, how it's changed, and how it gets understood in various institutional contexts. Of course, we know rhetoric is a very old discipline. Strictly speaking, composition is slightly newer, but at their intersection, we often ask questions about how they came to be married. So that's something that I think is unique about the field. Now, in terms of naming rhetoric and composition courses, in some departments and in some schools, these are college composition courses, usually, uh, but not always focused on academic writing or expository writing. But in other departments, these might be introductory courses that expose students to a survey of historical movements and rhetoric both Western and non-Western traditions. Or these might be courses that ask students to consider how various theories of written or visual communication operate in the public sphere. Or they might provide foundational work in the teaching and learning of uh, written or visual communication or literacy studies. So, you know, I'm, tr I'm really racking my brain trying to, to envision, are, are there any course catalogs where I actually see these courses all explicitly identified as rhetoric and composition? And I can't think of very many schools who do. Mm. But these are certainly courses that approach different aspects of, of the field that we understand as rhetoric and composition. And I think, I think the thing, one of the things I love about this collection is we see this diversity in curriculum approaches uh, reflected across the various chapters in the collection. And I think that diversity means there are many reasons to take students into the archives and many more opportunities 
for for um, them to learn different ways of thinking inside and outside of the discipline once they get to the archives. Thank you. That that's very helpful, and it also gives a sense of of the richness and the kind of um, complexity of 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 what you're working with. Um, and perhaps uh, we could, before we go into some of the detail of the book. Um, could you talk a little bit about who your imagined audiences might be? Yes, I, I, you know, I think we we imagined a fairly broad readership, and um, that can be risky sometimes. <laughs> but it, you know, we imagined not only scholars and teachers who are already invested in archival work, because you know we we don't have to work very hard to convince them of the value of the book. But we also thought, what would it mean to make this work accessible to graduate students, perhaps even to undergraduate students, who are discovering reasons for or ways of connecting with archives? And most importantly, we really wanted this book to be read by the librarians, the archivists, and the special collections staffs with whom we collaborate, because we consider them to be essential partners in the work. But um, they are often made invisible in our institutional structures. And then I'd say, ideally, also, perhaps university-level administrators or governing boards who may not realize the value of directing resources, financial resources and human resources, towards maintaining their archives and their special collections, or even towards promoting interdisciplinary study. This may or may not be the case in other countries, and I, I certainly hope it's not, but in the USA currently... Public universities as well as private colleges are faced with ultimatums to do more with less, mm. to, to, be, to be more efficient, <laughs> you know, to trim and to cut and to eliminate. And it seems to me it's the interdisciplinary courses or the courses where there is not an immediate relevance to graduation requirements. Those are the courses that are the first to be eliminated. And yet it's those courses that formed the foundation for all of the chapters in this book, almost all of the chapters in this book. Mm. I'm afraid that there's a attack happening yeah. here as well. Yeah, in fact, our our national public broadcaster has just been um, uh, their archival collection, the ABC archives, uh, are, are threatened with closure, and there's a huge campaign happening right now uh, to protect. This is this is generations of um, of, of public knowledge lost. It's um, it's it's yeah, urgent it's deeply deeply worrying and i think you're right that it's it's a, a, an important moment to be uh yelling from the rooftops about the the value of archives uh, for so many uh in so many different ways that often people are not aware of um yeah so look you, let's have a look at the the structure of your book and um given the the sort of uh the amazing range of, of contributions that came flooding in. Could you tell me a little about the choices that you made about organising it? Yes. Um, I will say the book is structured in three parts to reflect three different attitudes towards archives or perhaps beliefs about how archives function. Uh, the first section is archives as text, the second section is archives as collaboration, and the third is archives as activism. I had actually presented this framework at that 
2016 pre-conference workshop where Wendy and I had led a table together. And we kept returning to the framework when we were writing the proposal. There is actually another framework informing this one. Um, and we had we had played around with that framework first before coming back to one we felt was simpler and more streamlined. But that other framework was teaching about the archives, teaching for the archives, and teaching through the archives. And I, I guess I'll explain. These are intersections that we think reveal specific concerns in rhetoric and composition. So, for example, if the arguments in a particular chapter, such as Jane Greer's chapter or Kate Tirabasi's chapter or Jim Beasley's chapter, if their arguments are influenced by a desire to disrupt traditional approaches to rhetoric or writing or archival study, then we think those arguments contribute to our understanding of the archivist text. If the chapters argue for conducting archival projects as service learning for community groups or for the archives, then we think those arguments contribute to our understanding of archivist collaboration. And then if the chapters argue for helping students to use the archives to reveal racial omissions or gender gaps, then they contribute to our understanding of the archive as activism. Now, in truth, and this, this made it very difficult to figure out how to structure the book, because all 16 chapters are really motivated by all three attitudes or concerns. But we needed an organizational structure that would highlight the increasingly complex definitions of archive and, um, and that would help um, make visible some of the ways the book could be used. So, uh, you know, we, we ended up reverting back to that three-part structure. It seemed to to be an effective structure in my reading, and but of course you could see all of the interconnections and the way that, you know, some of the chapters could sit within another um, section. But yes. I think the threads were were yeah quite apparent. And uh, the, maybe you could tell me a little bit about what the chapters reveal, and and your own experience as well um, has taught you about the ways that working with archivists and with and within and through archival collections can enrich the teaching of of writing yes i i will try to to do that um in fact i i was meditating on this question a little bit and wondering which chapters will i choose i I think it's the case that several chapters across all three sections of the book do this quite nicely but you know Beginning with chapter one, Lisa Mastrangelo's argument uh, for teaching students in a college composition course, we we placed her chapter first because we felt she did a very good job of very explicitly arguing for the value of what she calls slow research and for using archival materials to challenge students' 21st century hyper-attentive reading practices, how to get them to slow down, how to get them to return to the text. Um, and so we thought, you know, she made the argument most explicitly, and that allowed other chapters to build on the argument from there. So I'd say that chapter is worth mentioning. And then I think other chapters open up that argument further. The very next chapter by Lisa Shaver advocates for using archives to help her first-year composition students develop um, a feminist consciousness, what she calls a feminist consciousness or um, a feminist ethic. Um, so more specifically using the idea of critical imagination, which she takes from feminist scholarship, uh, 
Shaver challenges her students to try to contend with the very fragmented and incomplete nature of archives, particularly when they are trying to preserve histories about women. And she argues that this is a very valuable lesson for uh, a valuable lesson for novice researchers because their tendency is to often look to the archive for absolutes or for answers or definitive evidence. And instead, she's asking them to consider how the archives have been gendered and how to notice exclusions and inclusions, but also how to read the archivist text. You know, how do you take an archival collection and understand that this is a discourse and deliberate decisions were made and narratives were written um, and certain evidence is present and other evidence is absent? And what what do you do with that from an information literacy perspective? And that's also been a, a pedagogical obsession of mine as well. So whenever I take students into the archives to process collections um, and, you know, to experience the challenges of composing finding aids and collection notes, I'm always asking them to think about how they might be inadvertently gendering these texts. Um, and then in the later sections of the book, um, I'm, you know, I'm forgetting the chapter number, but there is a, a chapter uh, by Shirley Rose and Glenn Newman and Robert Spindler. This is a chapter that builds on the idea of, of rhetorical listening. You see descriptions of archival collaborations that are bringing together not just students from across the disciplines, but also faculty. And what happens in these uh, collaborations is you're, you're making space for an exchange of beliefs about how learning occurs, about the role of writing and learning and about how to bring disciplines closer together. Um, let me think. There are, there are a couple of other chapters that I think illuminate what students can learn about writing. Uh, chapters 9 and 10, these are chapters that focus a bit more on technical writing and professional writing. But in chapter 9, Aaron Carlson, Michelle McMullen, and Patricia Sullivan argue that teaching digital archives in a technical writing course actually highlights the rhetorical nature of technical writing. Um, you know, they're proposing that uh, anytime you study technical communication, you're, it's, it's really a series of decisions about how information can be made more accessible and dynamic. And they argue that uh, digital archives function the same way because they function less like containers and more like platforms, and a good platform should make information visible. And then in Chapter 10, Jonathan Buell, Tamar Shute, and Laura Kissel argue that archives are very rich sites for teaching professional writing because students go through the motions of learning how to document incoming material. They learn about technologies of preservation, about writing documentation for using these technologies. And they also learn practical skills, how to argue for funds to develop and preserve and promote their collections. So that's just a handful of examples. Yeah, I was I was struck by the the range of possibilities and also that the the thoughtfulness around the technical writing and the the kind of service element um, of working in archives that that I hadn't given a lot of thought to. But um, I, I you know, thank really... thank you for noticing. Yeah, thank you for saying that and noticing that um, we 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 began the project knowing that all of us worked in our own institutional archives, but what we discovered through the project is there was such um, there was such an experiential motivation to actually work beyond our institutions. And so that is something that we ended up realizing many chapters uh, had in common. And we then, you know we ended up changing the way we framed the book. We realized, um, yes, we do a lot of work in our own university archives, but much of the work we do also extends beyond. So I'm, I thank you for noticing that. Actually, let's let's 
spend a little bit longer with with um, students working with university archival collections and and working critically with them. And perhaps you could talk a little bit about some of the projects that are discussed in the book. How to choose? Yes, how to choose? How to choose? How to choose? You know, I, I, I'll offer the book's final chapter, uh, chapter sixteen, in, in part because we did see the book as a progress, and so chapter one makes a very important, explicit argument, and all the chapters thereafter build, and we almost see a beautiful, complex set of possibilities occurring in Chapter 16. So this was an explicit collaboration between a faculty member at Spelman College in the state of Georgia, which is a historically Black school, Uh, Michelle Height, that's the faculty member. Michelle collaborated with the college archivist at her own school, Holly Smith. And that's where the collaboration began. But the collaboration also involves students working not only in their um, university archive, but at the Atlanta University Center, the the Woodruff Library. And so they uh, reached out to the present and past heads of the archives at at the Atlanta University Center, uh, Tiffany Atwater-Lee and Andrea Jackson-Gavin, respectively. What makes this collaboration so unique and memorable, I think, is it attempts to do the very difficult It's trying to equip first-year composition students to challenge the archival silences produced by what we might call respectability politics whenever an academic institution tries to reconcile its own racist histories. And the the students in Michelle Hyde's class did this in a very unique way. They, They approached their institutional archives in the same way that an archivist would approach them. They're, they're given a guided task to approach these collections, looking for what's absent, what's present, observing archival silences, and then reading the archival documents against other texts they've read. Texts by Bell Hooks, Toni Morrison, James Baldwin, writers who were very prominent in Black history or the civil rights movement. And so they're being asked to make judgments about the primary documents in the archives and the stories they tell or don't tell. And essentially, they're being asked to learn to question the archival record in a very deliberate way, and then to willingly admit that not all archival presences are necessarily liberatory or empowering. And then they're being asked to consider other, perhaps more effective or equitable ways to tell institutional narratives of Atlanta's civil rights movement, which may or may not mirror the ways that we traditionally construct and preserve our civil rights archives, both within and outside of an institution. Um, so, so here we have students working with a professor and a university archivist, realizing they also need to work with the Atlanta University Center archivists to, to because together they are sort of enacting or they're demonstrating that there is a willingness to challenge our tools of memorialization, and they're they're doing this all the while they're doing this. They're also fulfilling Spelman College's shared learning outcomes which emphasize critical and personal reflection, which they do because they're working through their own sense of being surprised or overwhelmed by the archives. The learning outcomes also emphasize the rhetoricity of all texts, including archives, um, which which they, they do. They end up reading the archive as um, 
a broader discourse. So when you when you read chapter 16, I think you realize that the course design and the course activities could only be made this rich through a very deliberate and ongoing collaboration where students have access um, to the archivist um, and not only to the professor who works with the archivist. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. I imagine this must actually be uh, wonderful for people working in archives. I mean, to see this kind of um, collaboration and ongoing, the development of relationships and um, and a, an acknowledgement of their particular sort of expertise as well. You know, that's that's one of the things I enjoy the most about archival work. It's 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 the collaborations. I think that that keep me going. And I have learned so much, you know, I I learned a good amount in my own course of study. Um, But I I feel as if my projects are richer and my desire just keeps getting stronger. The more I deliberately partner with archivists and special collection staffs. And I think, you know, that's um, that collaboration was very important to us. There's sometimes a class difference within universities and institutions that tend to promote faculty above archival staffs. We were hoping to break that down. Uh, you know, I mentioned earlier, it was very difficult to narrow down the selection of chapters. We received so many excellent proposals. Um, I can say t- two things that we prioritized as much as possible. We wanted to honor collaborations between archivists and academic researchers. So that was an imperative for us. Another was that we wanted to promote the work of younger or newer or lesser known scholars. So, um, you know, we kept coming back to those criteria. We wanted to make sure that this was not just a, a book written from the perspective of academicians who were using <laughs> um, institutional archives to their own end. Um, you know, we didn't want to hide the fact that theoretically the work is informed by rhetoric and composition and the field's values, but we, we, it needed to not just be a one-way project. And so we did, uh, we did reach out to quite a few people we know, not even as collaborators, but as initial internal reviewers, people whom we value, um, either archivists and collection managers themselves, or people who have worked for decades with archivists and collection managers. It was so important that we get their input on the work at its early stages. It occurs to me too that for archivists who are having to advocate for the protection of the collections that they work with, yes. uh, it must be important to develop these kinds of networks because if you are someone who is working closely with archives maybe you know working in a back room with a whole lot of material quietly you know doing your thing and then you suddenly have to go out and speak about the value of of the materials I think that must be quite uh challenging you know I I couldn't agree more I I mean um and I I I think we hope the book will have that 
positive effect. I think if anything, we we wanted to give voice to and speak alongside uh, some of our peers in making these arguments. It's too soon for us to tell whether the book will have that impact. I, I certainly hope it does. Well, let's hope this um, podcast interview gets a few people talking and reading and, and trying out also some of the ideas because there's a lot of really excellent project ideas that could be adapted uh, in different settings. That's something that struck me. Uh, give it, my background is more in secondary teaching um, and I did think about the potential for younger students to be working in in similar ways. And, in fact, maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the relationships that um, can develop between students and communities outside of of the universities um, whose materials and stories they they might be researching. Yes, thank you for asking. That constitutes the entire middle section of the book. And, you know, I'm, I'm hesitant to, to try to, to do too much summarizing these chapters only because the authors themselves, I think, have done the project's incredible justice. But I can speak just generally and succinctly and say, um, I think what we did was we chose chapters that uh, demonstrated just great critical aptitude in terms of professors helping students to understand the gravity and responsibility of um, using interpreting, analyzing, and contributing to the preservation of archives um, that are created on behalf of communities. Institutional archives are also created on behalf of institutions, but they've often been presented as lower risk. And by institutions, I mean academic institutions, because our special collections are built around different sets of needs. But uh, when we do the hard work of taking students out into the communities, we we want it to be clear that... um, we're not just consuming um, the community's archives, and we also want to make it clear that that perhaps we're not um, we're not competent enough on our own to be able to to create or construct the archives on behalf of the communities. We actually have to learn what a middle ground looks like, and I think we have a couple of chapters that have just done that so well. Some of the chapters focus a bit more on explicitly uh, decolonizing work. Um, you know, how do you delink? Um, your understanding or expectation of archive from from a sense of place that is culturally determined. Um, how do you? We also have a chapter that directly focuses on service learning and um, asks questions about, or, or certainly writes about uh, service learning uh, about doing archival work in the service learning context, and also you know what makes this a unique kind of service learning project, and how do you ensure that the service learning really is uh, reciprocal and experiential as all good service learning needs to needs to be and do. This brings to mind actually a project that I recently heard about in Australia. It's slightly different but it was essentially uh, a historian who had grown up or had spent part of his childhood in in an orphanage I understand and he was working recently with care leavers who were helped to locate their own records, their institutional records from being in care, um, institutional care, and they were then invited to talk back to the records um, and to identify the gaps and the silences 
to talk about what they had hoped to find and perhaps didn't find and to note inaccuracies and things that did not fairly represent their life. And it was a. I heard this historian speak about it at a, a recent conference, um, the Australian uh, Historical Association conference, and it was extremely powerful talk about, in a sense, gaining some control over uh, archives <laughs> that had been about very, you know, about the opposite of that, in effect. Yeah. yeah. Um, and a great yeah. sense of gravity around that that project. You know, I'm laughing because this this is not, in fact, calling to mind anything directly from the book. Um, but if it's all right for me to speak a little bit outside the book, I have to explain why I laughed. I spent the first half of the summer teaching in London, and the course I was teaching um, involved frequent visits to monuments and memorial sites, spaces, and museums. The, the city makes a great text for thinking about sites of justice and injustice and how... Um, how these things get memorialized. And um, with students, I spent a good bit of time asking them to describe how they felt if ever we walked into a museum space where it's very clear that the materials constituting that museum or that the, the materials from which the collection was constructed might have been co-opted, might have been colonized, and might have been stolen. And it, it wasn't the case uh, that this is true of every museum that we visited, but um, it was certainly the case of, of some of them. And I found that to be such a powerful exercise for them. And it, in the end, it didn't cause them to devalue the space, but it gave them a literacy so that they could walk throughout the space and view the collections differently, read the placards with more insight, and perhaps ask questions back. And so I saw them transforming from very willing, interested, dazzled, sometimes overwhelmed consumers to, um, you know, to, to critical thinkers in every good sense. Yes, I imagine that would have been a powerful experience. Um, you may, when you come to volume two of this book, you'll have a... <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. Another flood of contributions. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, maybe we could move on to what you talked about in the book as being a kind of um, possibility of transcending the skills theory divide. Um, yeah. What did you mean by that? Yeah. Thank you. I I I'm going to try to talk about this in three ways, and I. I'm trying to speak um, on behalf of Wendy as well, who, who couldn't join us. Um, so we, we write about this in our introduction, and the first way that I think about this is there, from our vantage point, there is a tendency in the humanities to, to think two competing ways about the notion of archive. Uh, we have scholars who either deconstruct it as a very abstract theoretical space that frustrates any questions of origin and ownership and identification and belonging. Um, following from Jacques Derrida's arguments in Archive Fever or following from Wolfgang Ernst's arguments in Archival Rumblings, this very abstract notion of, of uh, thinking about archive. So, so or, or they may approach archive as a, as a hopelessly practical actually existing site for processing. 
uh, Wendy and I and other people we know felt that we resided somewhere in between these two competing perspectives. We theorize, but we see the archive not only as abstraction and we see it not only as, as a place. And so we, along with other archival scholars, uh, Michelle Caswell is one, Randall Jimerson, we attribute this disconnect or this, this binary relationship or these competing perspectives to, um, to what Michelle Caswell has called the humanities have theory and the archives have practice trope. And we thought that um, our own field, rhetoric and composition, made a good case study for how a number of people are trying very hard to overcome this competition. Um, we, we think that people have made real theoretical contributions to archival studies without devaluing the actual place. And, um, and so that was one way we were hoping that the book would overcome the theory skills divide. We knew we wanted this book to be pedagogical, but we invited contributors to articulate how teaching helps them build theory in the archives. Another way we had hoped uh, to, to sort of transcend the skills theory divide was to observe what and how students learn in these courses that are based in archives and that are focused on archival processing. Um, so, you know, in other words, teaching through the archives is experiential education. It is scholarship and practice. And so while much of our scholarship positions rhetoric and composition as a field that's well-versed in borrowing from archival and library studies, we were hoping that this volume would highlight and showcase that we also feel like we are giving back to archival studies we are, you know, through our own focus on theories of teaching and learning and literacy, we are hoping that we are contributing something to development of that field. You know, asking and answering the questions of how do you bring the archives into the classroom? How do you equip students to become historians of the field's archives? We're hoping that, um, that, that those can, we can offer that, um, you know, that, that will benefit not just people in our field, but also archivists. Um, and people interested in archival processing. And then a third way to understand um, transcending the skills theory divide, I, I may have mentioned this earlier in the podcast, but we wanted to have our readers consider the nature of the collaborations between faculty and archivists. We wanted to look honestly at what each has to contribute to the other, because it's been our observation that faculty are often in privileged positions and archivists are not always valued. Um, so our hope is that this collection might help break down stereotypes that archivists are not subject specialists when they are. Uh, we were hoping this collection would help break down any stereotypes that archivists cannot be scholars in their own right, because we think that they are. Um, uh, so, you know, those are three ways I think we were uh, anticipating uh, transcending a skills theory divide. Thank you. Um and and where are you headed now? What what are your uh, what are your plans, or what are you researching? Are you staying in the same field? You know, that's a, always an interesting question because I my research interests are always <laughs> um, a bit diverse. So I am quite committed to archival work and and still working in archival projects. One project that I'm working on now is focusing a little bit more on um, this concept of archival mobility. And I've shifted my emphasis 
from institutional archives to um, archives in Southern African nations, essentially countries that were formerly under the control of the Commonwealth that have recently, um, within the last 25 to 50 years, gained independence, conducted recent free elections, uh, begun decolonizing their university curriculum, and, um, and are starting to reconstruct their archives, in part because their documents were either expatriated during times of conflict or, um, or their national identity um, was, was not stable or was not disparate before um, they were ratified as, um, you know, as parliamentary democracies, fairly new governments. So I've been looking at transnational archives and um, more specifically, I've been tracing women's representation in these transnational archives. So there's, uh, there's a s- selected group of women whose careers I've been following. And these are women who were either elected leaders or they were uh, academicians or they were feminist activists um, between the period of 1915 and 2015. And I'm very interested in, um, and these are often women who lack stable collections. So they may have had quite illustrious careers but their archival representation is vexed or troubled for any number of reasons. And so I've been um, searching for archival representation. I've been looking within their own countries. I've been looking in uh, European countries. I've been looking in the collections of American institutions that have either purchased or accessed or co-opted their materials for, for their own reasons, their own agenda. And I've been thinking about the complexities, the challenges, uh, and the problems of trying to read their legacies when their archival presence is so disparate. That sounds fascinating. So are you actually uh, able to organise the repatriation of the original archives, or is it more about uh, obtaining scans and, you know, using the kind of digital archival sharing or I'm curious yeah it's been a combination of both so I've made several trips to uh, South Africa and to uh, Namibia and actually before COVID I had hoped to get to Malawi and uh, back to South Africa and Namibia I've had to suspend my travel plans for a couple of years I was um, hoping to extend that research also you know not just to Central Africa but to other countries in Africa so I was hoping to get to Nairobi this summer and due to family concerns, couldn't do that. So it is. it has been a combination of things. And then, of course, I've been physically at some of the institutions in the USA uh, that have acquired these collections. And that, to me, has been fascinating because there are a number of arguments, and I think they're, they're reasonable arguments, that say that much of the collected historiography on African women has often been theorized from and written from the perspective of the global north. And one of the arguments I'm making is I think that's because, quite frankly, um, the Global North may currently own or host more of their records. Um, so, uh, so I think it's a very good question you ask, and that's, in fact, what I'm working through right now. I'm trying to determine whether the argument can hold up across these different modalities and contexts, because it's, it's just intriguing to show up at 
a, a, a well-resourced university archive in the USA and realized that they have the world's largest collection of Liberian newspapers. And to wonder why, why there, <laughs> you know, why, why there? And, mm. um, but at the same time, it's just as valuable to go to the South African national archives and, and to see the combination of unprocessed materials with newly processed materials and um, to understand that they have a commitment as um, part of their truth and reconciliation work to really to, to make these materials accessible. But you're so aware that so much has just been lost because it was not kept or valued or because it was it was too risky to keep. So it was repatriated or destroyed. And so it's been fascinating to sort of, you know, get a sense of what constitutes a national archive in this context when I have my own expectations of uh, what a national archive looks like and how how um, illustrious women would be represented in that archive. That sounds like you have several yeah. lifetimes ahead of you. Of it's, it's quite possible. Enormous. Yeah, it's it's possible. <laughs> it's maybe too much for a single project. Still, I, you, you could imagine all sorts of possibilities as well for, um, you know, collaborations with archivists in in a much broader range of, of locations and, and the possibilities yes. of that. Are, yeah, quite um, mind-boggling and, actually. And, you know, it is mind-boggling, and you you asked just a lovely question, and and I, I want to say I hope to be able to at some point practically assist with the repatriation of materials, but that has not been a part of the project as yet. And that brings in so many different elements, doesn't it, in terms of it diplomacy does. and um, yeah, different levels of. Uh, administration and authority, I imagine. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Now, as we get close to, to winding up, is there anything that you wanted to communicate about the book that, that I may not have asked you about? Nothing that I can think of. I, um, I do encourage readers to, to get hold of a copy and to communicate with uh, me and with Wendy if they find uh, that there is anything in the book that's particularly useful, perhaps even to communicate ways they think the work in the book could be extended. You know, you mentioned a possible second volume. We hadn't thought of that, but <laughs> um, but um, it's certainly an idea we would consider, uh, especially since we know this work continues. Uh, folks in our discipline are continuing to build theory on archives. So we you know, we, we, we do just hope it meets all those expectations. We really hope sincerely that it does reach all of the audiences we intended it to reach. Well, we'll do our best to spread the word and uh, encourage listeners to, uh, at the very least, order a copy for your local library um, because that's always a good way to uh, share, share the knowledge that's accumulated um, Therese, thank you so much for speaking to us today. Uh, there's a lot of food for thank thought you. in this. Yes. Thank you for this opportunity. And again, I'm so sorry Wendy couldn't join us, but um, I did my best to, to speak on behalf of both of us. Thank you so much. <laughs>